Welcome. Uh, this is the ninth um, episode of the Anatomy Cupboard. And it's entitled, What Might Have Happened If Charles Darwin Hadn't Left Medical School? Between high school and university, after I got into medical school, by, by a whisker, I might add, way back about a hundred years ago, the school invited us to read William Harvey's classic book on the circulation. Well, I was 17 years old, and at the time, we were led to believe this little period between high school and university, that this would be an excellent start to our medical studies. It's actually taken me nearly 50 years to figure out quite what this was about. But I think I've got it licked. At the time, in late 1972, I thought it was some sort of joke. And I truly wondered whether I'd chosen the right intellectual path. The book was weird and a bit boring. And it was translated into an old English, you might say ye olde English. But it also talked a bit about his, that is, Harvey's tourniquet and bleeding experiments, which I must say I didn't quite understand. I think I get them now. Moreover, it made a big deal about its Latin title, Exercitatio di motu cordis et sanguinis in animalibus, on the excitation of the movement of the heart and blood in animals. And I read that whole thing out broadly in a kind of calligraphy on my folder, little understanding the pamphlet of a book, and really, to be honest, not liking it much at all. I proudly told my tutors that I'd read it not once but twice. No one cared a hoot, and clearly no one even realised that it was on the syllabus at all. Of course, what I now know is that the book was written in the late 1620s or so by William Harvey, and that it came from a series of experiments performed by him with, if one wants to be melodramatic, an evocative demonstration of how the circulation worked by him cutting the aorta of a live restrained dog and showering the front row of a Padwan lecture theatre with its pulsating blood. Now, what the heck was all of this and why should I care? Well, it really represents a concept rather than a moment. The idea of a circulation of the blood had been debated since the time of Galen, who thought that the left and the right sides of the heart were completely separate. And uh, he thought that the blood was produced every day in the liver and that it dissipated into the periphery. He also thought that there were microscopic pores that no one could find, so that blood sweated across from the right side of the heart to the left. The story of these invisible pores was in fact so convincing that Vesalius, who could never find them either, wrote of their existence in his famous 1543 book, The Fabrica Humani Corpus, The Fabric of the Human Body, that was so influential in anatomy because it was the first book to follow dissections of cadavers with their illustrations. And I think that this rather strange view of the heart came about by the fact that they knew that there were arteries coming from the heart and veins leading back to it, but they couldn't really figure out 
that the two systems were connected, or one system really. The arteries were thick-walled and robust, capable of withstanding the pressure head of steam coming from the heart. The veins, by contrast, were thin-walled and distensible, capacitance vessels that could expand to hold large volumes at much lower pressure. And of course, they couldn't understand how the blood became oxygenated, even though they knew about fresh red oxygenated blood and blue cyanosed unoxygenated blood. It was so confusing that the vessels leading to the lungs, which they assumed could pick up the valuable pneuma, or air, should have been the veins for them on that side of the heart. But for all the world, they looked like arteries. And these pulmonary arteries, as we know them today, they called the venae arteriosa, veins that looked like arteries. And of course, coming from the lungs with the pneuma and yet going to the left side of the heart, the left atrium, were what they thought should be arteries, but which looked like veins. And so these were the arteria venosae, the arteries that looked like veins. And these were, of course, the left uh, atrial um, chamber receiving the pulmonary veins. For the strict galenus, you had to really believe that everything that you were, wit that you were witnessing was really the other way round. But what old Harvey did was by bleeding people and animals. He loved, uh, may I say, he adored vivisecting live animals and he described himself, even though he was a physician with a large practice, as a fine cat and dog cutter. What he did was to show that the blood moved around in a particular direction. And what's more, he correlated that movement with the rhythmic contraction of the heart. His boss, the anatomist Hieronymus, Fabrizio ab Aquapendente, get that for a name, who preferred the Latin cognomen Fabricius, I'm not surprised, and who had taken over the position of Professor of Anatomy after Vesalius had died, and after Vesalius's pupil Fallopius, he of the fallopian tube, had also prematurely died, old Fabricius had shown that the veins had directional valves in them, but he didn't really know what they were for. Well, now Harvey showed why these valves were directionally important. And he also clearly demonstrated that the systolic punch of the ventricles expelled blood out of the heart and that it returned via the veins. There was no need for these invisible pores. And of course, in so doing, Harvey put a nail in the galenic coffin of anatomy. The other thing about this Harveyan theory is that it proposes some sort of connection between the terminal little arteries, what are called the arterioles at one end of the circulation, and the small little veins, the so-called venules, at the tissue periphery. That little connecting vessel, what became known as the capillary, was a postulate by Harvey. No one had ever seen it, and its visualisation had to wait another 150 years until the Italian Marcello Malpighi first showed them in a frog's lung under the microscope. So the moral there is that if you have a good theory, it may have to wait for technology to catch up. We've seen this, of course, with Einstein and his postulate of black holes. Now, you might wonder where I'm going with all of this. 
but bear with me. Harvey, who was born in the 1570s, had created a method of experimentation. He devised a basic technique whereby one could posit an hypothesis and then test it out either to find out whether what you found supported or refuted it. In short, through his new experimental technique and through this process of empirical observation, Harvey might perhaps rightfully, if somewhat artificially, claim to have discovered science, or more correctly, deemed to have constructed a basic scientific method. You see, what existed before then was really nothing. Before science, the celestial phenomena, the passage of comets, the eclipses, for example, were all omens, portents, if you will, of the gods, or later of the one true god, retributions on the non-penitence. Now, that was the life of the medievalist who uh, had that constant fear and reverence of the Almighty. By the way, there'd be no real need for doctors since there was no concept of cause and effect of illness if it was the will of an angered deity. There might be medicaments and salves, but the whole thing was in God's hands. And of course, if there was no understanding of illness and its cures, there would be no appreciation of the individual organs or of their synergic function, and hence no real need uh, nor advantage in learning or even dissecting a human being. You see where I'm going with this? This guy, Harvey, if one can lay it all at the feet of one man, was the inventor of science. In his History of Western Philosophy, Bertrand Russell writes of it. By the way, this is simply one of the most marvellous of books which synthesises human philosophy over time from the ancients at least as far as World War II. Well, he, that is uh, Russell, says that 1700 was the year of science. Before then, it was, as he says, conceivable that one could hear of the Salem witch trials and that people could be burned at the stake for witchcraft and wizardry. But after that, in the age of Kepler and Galileo and Newton, such things would be inconceivable. Those three men had created a mathematics around the heavens to which even the celestial bodies were obedient. Eclipses and the passage of the comets, the appearance of planets and their trajectories were now predictable events and to be joyfully expected rather than to be unprecedented fears. What happened with anatomy was that it, along with physics and chemistry, switched their allegiance, moving away from the natural philosophies to the rubric of the burgeoning or developing sciences. In so doing, astronomy jettisoned its links with astrology, and chemistry dumped its connection with the magical world of those like Paracelsus, whose life revolved around alchemy. More than just the notion that one could find a mechanism of transforming base metals into gold, but more a melding of all the world's mysticisms and religions into an overarching method of universal conception and healing. The sciences would become the arbiters of physical truths and they would be the explanators of nature herself and anatomy was now one of them. They had left behind the philosophers and the metaphysicians who in their philosophies and with their moral and ethical questions concerned themselves not with nature but with human nature. Science has remained ever since definitive and pure 
exact and either confirmed or refuted. Philosophy, again, as Russell has written, interposes itself between theology and science. That's a direct quote. Of course, we can argue if that's true, but wherever philosophy sits, it cannot adequately overcome its relativism. That's not the purview of science. And if philosophy is to lie against religion, then this too need not base itself on anything observational or exact, but requires simply the leap of faith. I'm certainly not sure that Russell's statement, which he wrote in 1946, that philosophy is some sort of bridge then between faith and demonstrable fact, however, makes a lot of sense. Indeed, the need for philosophy to rely on religion for its negotiating place is also a remarkable statement coming from an avowed atheist. Nevertheless, I'm getting off topic. Now, it's only 50 years later, after reading Harvey's Demotu, that I understood, uh, or maybe understand, what it was doing there and why I needed to read it between high school and university. It is, I think, the same reason for a lot of these podcasts on anatomy itself. It needs to be contextualised. So not only why am I reading this or hearing this, but also why am I reading or hearing it now? And what the heck does it mean? If our mathematics and chemistry and physics teachers had taught us in this way, I think we might have understood it all instead of it being a little bit useless at times and confused. And I know that as anatomists, we have an obligation to teach anatomy like this. Our students deserve nothing less. I worked for five years as a professor of surgery in the Caribbean, and my old dean... Uh, used to tell me how much he adored school. The old teachers, all of whose names he could remember, all of the houses that they had in the school. He was always describing to me the moral virtues of the different houses of the schools, the loyalty and fidelity of doing it for the house. School was where he said he learned the most about life. It was all very Harry Potter, I suppose. Well, the dean or should I say now Sir Dean, I won't mention his name, maybe he's listening to this podcast, I don't know. He was visibly upset when I told him that I'd learned most about life after I left school. I imagine I agree a little with that old Yale literary critic Harold Bloom that perhaps in encouraging a type of reading Harry Potter has actually done considerable damage, but I'm sure many of the listeners to this podcast won't agree with that view, and so to you I apologise. But all of that house nonsense and all of the school mottos, ours was honour the work, don't have a particular significance for me. And what does have significance was the energy I expended in learning outside of school, perhaps for the sheer want of learning itself. Apropos of this, when I retired from clinical medicine, I would say that the internet has helped me understand more about the history of medicine, about history, art, architecture, poetry and the like in the last few years than I learned in medicine in the previous 30. It's never too late to become an autodidact and perhaps then autodidacticism lends itself to an older age when one would otherwise feel intellectually spent. Now this by way of slow introduction brings me to the topic of this podcast Why did Charles Darwin leave medical school? Do we know what drove him to seek newer pastures and to retrain his mind? No, I'm not in any way 
comparing myself to them. It's just a means of introduction only. Charles Darwin entered the Edinburgh Medical School in 1825, but he left it in disgust in 1827. Now, I remember how impressed I was with the Edinburgh Medical School buildings. When I studied and uh, lived in the small but bleak suburb of Musselburgh, just outside Edinburgh City, to sit and pass the fellowship at the Edinburgh College of Surgeons, but the school was the haunt, if that's the right word, of its founding family, the Monroes, for 128 years. And although it was a powerful attractant for many international students over these years, they were also a repellent for others. The founder, Alexander Monroe I, if you like, had a son, Alexander, who also had a son, Alexander, and so the first called himself Primus, the second Secundus, and the third Tertius. You can imagine what these guys were like. Monroe Primus, who was born in 1697 and died in 1767, was a master of anatomy, and he devised a dazzling series of lectures and cadaver dissection demonstrations that established the Edinburgh School. The Primus curriculum soon became legendary. By all accounts, Primus was an extraordinarily dynamic and innovative anatomy teacher, incorporating human dissections, vivisections, prosections and even models into an extensive lecture program accompanied by demonstrations of the wonders of the microscope. His son, Secundus, born 1733 and died 1817, may have virtually plagiarised a reproduction of the lectures of Leiden's great Professor Herman Brahave, who we met in a previous podcast, whom Primus had studied under, but Secundus was considered brilliant, commencing his studies of anatomy at his father's school when he was 11 years old, whilst at the same time taking courses in Latin, Greek, philosophy, mathematics and history. Sounds remarkable. Like Vesalius, Monroe Secundus secured the position of Professor of Anatomy in the same year that he graduated from medicine. Not a bad feat there. But he got into a lot of fights with the Hunter brothers over who had discovered what. Actually, they fought heavily over the discovery of the development of the testicle, and Secundus admitted that he'd plagiarised John Hunter's work. Secundus trained under Bernard Siegfried Albinus in Leiden, a very interesting man who's worth another podcast, and also under Johann Meckel in Berlin. Secundus had pretty small attendances to his Edinburgh lectures, I think probably because he lectured uh, in Latin. That was probably the reason why not many people attended. And then there was Tertius, born 1773, died 1859. Now, Tertius was reputed to be pretty lazy and not much of a lecturer. By his time, the school had suffered after introduction of the Tertius course, which was generally regarded as rather uninspiring and which had resulted in a shift of interest in dissection back down to the London schools. The Edinburgh faculty had also lost favour because of the poor availability of corpses, 
with the anatomist artist John Bell complaining about his old school in Edinburgh that, quote, in Dr Munro's class, unless there be a fortunate succession of bloody murders, not three subjects are dissected in the year, unquote. Tertius actually had the dubious distinction of performing the last mandated public anatomization, public dissection in 1832 of an executed criminal, a man by the name of John Howison, the so-called Crammond murderer, who was convicted of killing an elderly woman, Marta Geddes, uh, with a shovel. Tertius had two sons who both studied medicine. He actually had six sons and six daughters, but the two boys were James, born in 1806 and died in 1870, and David, born in 1813, dying in 1877. David migrated to New Zealand and never practised medicine, but he became a pastoralist, that's a sheep farmer to you and me, and eventually he became Speaker of the Parliamentary House of Representatives, and he was knighted in 1866. Old Tertius had a soft spot for David, and he bequeathed his entire book and manuscript collection to him, and these made their way to New Zealand in 1871. Sir David bequeathed the collection to his son-in-law, Sir James Hector, since none of his sons were in the medical field. And in 1929, Hector's son, Dr Charles Monroe Hector, made sure that his alma mater, the Otago Medical School in Dunedin on the South Island of New Zealand, got the collection. When I was coordinating the postgraduate diploma in surgical anatomy there throughout 2016, I had occasion to see this wonderful collection of old anatomy books and manuscripts many times, thanks to its director and librarian, Donald Kerr, whom I should acknowledge, uh, an excellent person who showed me the great books of Brahave, their 1553 edition of Vesalius's Fabrica and the first edition of William Hunter's extraordinary 1774, The Human Gravid Uterus. It's a wonderful collection of books. Anyhow, we veered off again. Tertius loomed large in Darwin's decision to leave medical school. Writing to his sister Carolyn on the 23rd of October 1825, with contempt of Tertius, Darwin wrote that he frequently arrived to the lecture hall covered in blood. I dislike Monroe and his lectures so much that I cannot speak with decency about them. He is so dirty in person and in actions, unquote. Knox had left no better impression when... He was visited by the American ornithologist John James Audubon, who was seeking subscribers to his monumental self-illustrated work, Birds of America. Knox showed him around the Edinburgh Anatomy School. Audubon, who was used to killing and dissecting the birds that he drew and who was a skilled taxidermist, was appalled at what he saw. He wrote that Knox was... Quote, dressed in an overgown with bloody fingers, the sights were extremely disagreeable, many of them shocking beyond all I've ever thought could be. I was glad to leave this charnel house and breathe again. 
the salubrious atmosphere of the streets. That's quoted in Maria Audubon, his daughter's Audubon and his journals, which was published in 1899. So these anatomists were not held in particularly good stead. But there were other things that drove Charles Darwin away from the medical school, despite an expectation of his family. Charles actually came from a medical family, with both his father Robert and grandfather Erasmus, who had trained in Edinburgh. Both Charles and his older brother Erasmus had just entered the medical school there. and Before then, Charles had helped his father treating the poor on rounds in Shropshire, but Robert the father, Robert Darwin, had despaired of young Charles Darwin ever amounting to anything much. In his autobiography, Charles recalled that his father thought that he, that is Charles, quote, cared for nothing but shooting, dogs and rat catching, and that he'd be a disgrace to himself and all of his family, unquote. As it was, Charles wasn't a particularly good student. In the early days in Shropshire, or in medical school for that matter, his trips to the operating room were disastrous as he was squeamish at the sight of blood. It wasn't surprising that after two terms there, Darwin was a little fed up and was attracted to the fine natural history museum at Edinburgh, even though he also found the lectures, the lecturers by the founder of the museum, Robert Jamieson, extraordinarily dull. It seems, I think, that young... Darwin was probably pretty hard to please. But at any rate, young Darwin took the time to learn taxidermy with a John Edmonston, who was a freed black slave from Guyana. Uh, uh, Edmonston himself had been taught by the naturalist Charles Waterton, who also taught Darwin to, as he put it, stuff birds. For the purpose, Edmonston had charged Darwin the princely sum of a guinea an hour every day for two months. Even though Jamieson was a geologist and Darwin considered himself a geologist when he was travelling to the Galapagos on the Beagle, Jamieson's lecture series also had included some lectures on the origin of the species of animals. Jamieson was also a proponent of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and was involved in a local club, the so-called Plinian Society, no doubt named after Pliny the Younger, whose works on natural history were well known. Darwin himself recalls walking along the Firth of Forth Bridge, uh, which is a beautiful but a windy part of Edinburgh, with a friend, the zoologist Robert Grant, when he first embraced, that is Darwin, at least the idea of an origin of the species, whilst he was still a medical student but dropping out. And he later acknowledged that his grandfather's book, 1794 book, Zoonomia, which had proposed a kind of broad evolutionary theory, also had come into his mind at that moment. After that, Charles left Edinburgh for Christ's College in Cambridge, where he came under the botanic influence of the Reverend John Stevens Henslow. Their connection became so close that Darwin was called, quote, the man who walks with Henslow. But it's likely, really, that Grant's influence outside the medical school, that that was seminal. And it's likely that Grant taught Darwin about specimen collection of primitive marine life and how to inspect them under a microscope. All of these influences probably affected Darwin's formulation of evolution. Lamarck, Grant and others.
and these influences are unlikely to have happened unless he'd been exposed as a medical student to these non-practicing doctors. The idea that he was formed as a thinker, even if not a Lamarckian or someone with a formulated evolutionary or perhaps revolutionary idea, is suggested in a wonderful little paper written by Niles Eldridge of the American Museum of Natural History in New York in The Lancet in 2009. It's clear that Darwin was a poor, conventional student, easily bored and distracted. Perhaps he had ADHD. He came to hate medical school and particularly its anatomists, but without them he wouldn't have been exposed to the likes of Grant and learned the techniques of preservation and animal and mollusk dissection that was so essential to his preserving specimens on the beagle and which cemented his specimens as just as important as his theories. Those Galapagos mockingbirds that Darwin stuffed and the finches he saw were all different in each of the islands that he visited. And it was this that formed the linchpins of his new theory. He may well have hated medical school, but without it, we probably wouldn't have had Darwin's theory of evolution. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.